throughout the pages of the Bible, swims a Leviathan. It touches every page of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in every chapter, behind every verse. We can always trace a common theme. At times, this Leviathan resides just below the surface. At other times, it erupts, bringing forth a great beauty. And when it does, what does it declare? There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you. Again, we see over in chapter 6 of Isaiah, one seraphim called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be consecrated or even dedicated unto God. Holiness does something to a person. It changes us. Those who are holy and witness the misuse of that which is holy, those things dedicated unto God, it brings within them a a jealousy. It makes them zealous. Intense emotions erupt. You see, holy zeal does not sit still. There is no neutral gear for holy zeal. Indifference is not a friend of holy zeal. The Christian possesses a holy zeal for that which belongs to God. Well, this morning, you and I, we need to find ours. Many reasons exist for its absence. Our culture has shut us up. Fear paralyzes the Christian community. We're afraid to offend. We forget that the very core of the message of our faith, delivered by the divine figure in our faith, it is a message of offense. Or maybe it's genuinely not within us. We've just been worn down. The profane in the world around us The perverse, we're just used to it. It's all too ordinary anymore. Well, today, we recover a holy zeal. We rediscover the passion of Jesus Christ for those things that belong to God. And we walk in his path. We we imitate him. We take up his cause. We find this in Matthew chapter 21. Open up your Bibles with me. We'll begin in verse 12. Jesus Christ unveils two displays of holy zeal. You see, a holy zeal possesses what I call an offensive drive. It takes action. And a holy zeal also possesses a defensive drive. It protects or it guards. Our message today is two verses. It's Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. 
Picking up where we left off last week, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. We begin with this offensive drive, this action. There's an aggressive side. You see that in these combative actions of Jesus. Now, remember last Sunday we read of his triumphal entry. He he entered into Jerusalem. There was much acclaim. It's the grand arrival of God's Messiah. And the Gospel of Mark also recorded this event. And as he did, he recorded... One more event. Listen to this. What did Jesus do after the Hosannas? He entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. To get an idea of how Jesus was feeling that night as he returned, To find rest, you might consider the last time you laid down to go to sleep with strong emotions still coursing through your body. I wonder if our Lord's night wasn't something like that. That thought that goes on repeat in your mind as you hit the pillow. You see, Jesus is back in God's holy city. And Jesus is back in God's holy temple. And Mark said that he looked around at everything. He takes, he takes it all in. And he does not like what he sees. He stayed in Bethany Sunday night, and Monday morning he comes back. He leaves Bethany and comes back into Jerusalem, back to the holy city, back to the holy temple. And here's what he saw. You can pull that slide up. He saw a magnificent temple complex. The image behind me is from the English Study Bible. I didn't sketch that this morning. (laughs) The word for temple in our text refers to the entire temple complex. Now, there's another word used for just the temple building proper. That will be used later in Matthew's account. You recall that when Jesus died, the veil was torn from top to bottom into the temple. That's a different word. It's just the building. So Matthew here is describing the entrance of Jesus into this massive temple complex. Now the main building is right here. This is the temple proper. And the temple there is divided into two parts. In the rear is the Holy of Holies. This is a place where where no man can enter. A priest would go in once a year. In the front would be the most holy place. If you see that flat platform right there, that's where they offered all of the sacrifices. And then the temple of the priest was in this area right here. That was priests only. On the other side of that would be where the men could come, the the court of the Israelites. They were permitted to come this far. And then this is the gate of Nicanor. These would be two massive doors. 
One account I read said that it took 20 men to open these massive doors into this temple area. This area here is is the court of the women. This would be as far as the women could go to witness their sacrifices. They'd have to look through the gate. And then out here is going to be the broader court of the Israelites. Only Jewish people were permitted in this court area here. This is called the Stoag. This is a dividing wall. We'll come back to that term later in our passage. This here, this massive court area, is the court of the Gentiles. That's the court of the Gentiles. That's the area we're concerned with this morning. The court of the Gentiles. So when Jesus entered this court, Jesus stopped. And perhaps it was a slow boil. Maybe it was instant, zero to 60 in three seconds. But Jesus grew angry. Because this court of the Gentiles was a madhouse. Absolute pandemonium. Now, we expect people to be there. Praise God that people are there. It is a good thing for people to come to the house of the Lord to worship. It's Passover week. Pilgrims are in town. They're faithful. They're obedient. They're thirsty for worship. But others also occupied that court. We would call them hagglers, merchants who took selling to a whole new level. In verse 12, we discover two groups in the holy temple. The first are those who are buying and selling. Now, to be fair, this was a needed service. The buying and selling was a good thing. Visiting pilgrims were coming from a long, long way. They needed animals to sacrifice. Now remember, they're still under the Old Testament law in this time. They were required to come and offer sacrifices during Passover. Now we know that Jesus is going to be the perfect sacrifice. That's still a few days away. And the law stipulated that these sacrifices needed to be without blemish. Who determines that? Well, the priest determines that. And the last thing you would want to do is travel a long way to get to Jerusalem, to get to the temple. You've brought along your animal, and the priest rejects it. So it was a good service that was provided to the people. Selling them unblemished animals actually helped them. Only it didn't. Records indicate that these vendors charged exorbitant amounts of money, far above and beyond what the animals were worth. This is like going into a theme park. You've done this. And you buy food in the theme park. And they read off the amount to you, and you just, holding back your credit card, you go ahead and and purchase it. They charge that extra amount of money because they can Now, what's worse is how they treated the poor in this temple complex. Look at the end of verse 12. Jesus goes after those selling doves. Doves were needed for sacrifice. Leviticus lists a number of reasons that someone would bring a dove for sacrifice. Most of all, doves were the sacrifice of the poor. Those who could not afford larger animals, they they would be able to afford doves and sacrifice doves. You might recall Mary and Joseph. 
After the birth of Jesus, this was their sacrifice. By one estimate, in our currency, a pair of doves worth, four, worth a nickel would be charged $4. So the second recipient of the righteous anger of Jesus are the money changers. We see them as a second group in our verse. Again, this is a necessary service. Any male, ages 20 or over, he had to pay a required temple tax. But he could only pay that in Jewish coin or Tyrian coin. Of course, Roman coin was not accepted. Neither were Greek coins. So that money needed conversion. How do you think that went? Right. An exorbitant amount of a charge over, above, and beyond what it would cost to convert their money they brought into the money accepted at the temple. Excessive rates were charged. Jesus says, you are making the temple a robber's den. So put this all together now. From the perspective of Jesus, this holiest of places, He's it's entered by, by the holiest of men. Jesus had the purest of eyes, and he witnesses greed and desecration and the gross misuse of the temple. I'm the grandson of a dairy farmer from central Pennsylvania, and I have great memories of going along with my grandfather to the animal show. To these animal sales, it was uh, right down the road at a place called the, the Harrisburg Farm Show Complex. And you can remember as a child, everything is just bigger. You know, when you go back and visit home, everything was, was bigger as a child. So I can remember that this massive complex with animals everywhere, and they sold to farmers. It was jam-packed with animals. I can remember going in one of the buildings, it seemed like there was a competition between the noise of the animals and then the noise of the crowds. And you know, of course, then, that these places have their own terrible smell in the heat of summer as well. Well, this is a scene similar to what Jesus entered in the temple. And he goes on the offensive, and he goes on the attack, and he acts like a man who has a holy zeal. Like him, a holy zeal ought to move us as well. What did he do? Well, he attacked sin. I want you to remember for a moment a time when you got really, really mad. Perhaps you were watching the news. Maybe some terrible injustice occurred. Maybe someone mistreated you. Remember what it was like to be that angry. Jesus felt a similar anger. Now, his was a perfect anger. We would call it a, a righteous indignation. Jesus never sinned in his anger. It's debatable if you and I can do that at all. But he cared deeply about the things of God. We might say that he was jealous for them. Again, not in the sinful sense, not in, in a sinful type of jealousy, but in a pure and a holy jealousy. This might be um, a jealousy that, that one spouse has for another spouse. It's, it's out, of, out of love, out of devotion. See, the temple belongs to God. That's why he's so zealous. It's the temple where God chose to dwell. And the sinful way in which this holy place was abused, it brought out in the Lord this fervor, 
this zeal, sin would not be tolerated. And that says a lot because the Lord tolerated quite a bit, especially against himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. You know what Isaiah 53 says of him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus is a lion and Jesus is a lamb. And when sin approached the holy temple of God, he roared. Suzanne Dietrich writes, Gentleness does not exclude firmness, and love sometimes demands the most unyielding severity. To Jesus, the prostitution of God's holiness would not be tolerated. God's house is sacred. And what you and I do together here on Sunday mornings in this place, it must be sacred. This must be our refuge from the world. As one pastor has said, we do not want the world to come in. We want heaven to come down. This must be our place to come and worship God. We cannot use this as a time to please our own preferences I read of a complaint that was once lodged against a church service. I didn't like that worship service. The reply came, well, we weren't worshiping you. (laughs) That is to say, when we come in here, we must be all about God and not about ourselves and not about our preferences, but about God who is holy. And this must be a place for purity, for holiness. Part of what I do when I come in here is I'll sit on that front chair and I'll confess sin because I have sin to confess when I come into God's house. That is part of what we must do in here is to get right before God and get all of that stuff out of the way so we can worship him in purity. You and I are richly blessed because we don't need doves or sheep or hagglers or altars or sacrifices. We go right to God our Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We can go to a gracious God right now. You can go to God from where you are with whatever you have to bring him. I would say if we can't get our holiness right here, can we get it right anywhere? These mornings in this place, this is ground zero for holiness. So Jesus is on the offensive and he attacks sin. Secondly, he offends sinners. In our passage this morning, Jesus offended people. I believe in our passage there are those that he disappointed. I think there are those that he angered. And I know there are those he enraged. I believe he disappointed the crowds. Remember the triumphal entry. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Here comes our king right to the temple. The Roman emperor doesn't reside in the temple, Messiah. He's over in the king's palace. What a disappointment it must have been to discover that their savior, their Messiah, was not coming to overthrow the local king. The king of Israel was supposed to do that, at least in their minds, but he didn't. He doesn't threaten Rome. He threatens 
religion. No doubt the crowds, they grew disappointed. Secondly, I think that he angered the merchants. I'm pretty sure the guys whose tables were overturned and livestock scattered, I'm pretty sure that they were mad that day. It's not a stretch to think that. We can test this out. We can go over to the farmer's market in Bellingham on a Saturday, and we can just dump out a bunch of cash and see what happens to it. It's going to get swooped up, and things are going to get knocked over. It'll be chaos. Thirdly, I know he enraged the religious leaders. Someone once said, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps the loudest is the one you hit. Well, Mark records their reaction to what Jesus did. The chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. They're going to embark upon a dark mission that culminates later in that week at a location called Calvary. A holy zeal for your holy God. It will evoke from other people disappointment and anger and even rage. And I want to make one more observation here before we move on to the next point. This scene, what we are seeing this morning, Jesus did this before. Back in John chapter 2, we would say this happened at the, at the earlier, the onset of his ministry. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So did Jesus fail? Why is he back again? Why do this again if it's so unsuccessful, Jesus? He did it because God is worthy and because God is holy and because God is beautiful. You see, it's not about results. It's about faithfulness. God wants our obedience. He doesn't want our numbers or our results or our goals. God will use obedience to accomplish all of those things, but it's faithful obedience he desires. And this has been true throughout church history. I mean, perhaps you've read stories of missionaries. It seems as though they've spent their whole life on the mission field for, for seemingly little fruit. This has been the story of God's prophets through the Old Testament, faithfully obeying, proclaiming his word. Can we find a time when Israel actually fully repented? It's a story of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Is the world elbowing to get in here this morning? Yesterday, we went back into our Columbia neighborhood. We knocked on doors. We gave out Bibles. We spent time with people. We shared the gospel. We didn't do this because hundreds of people responded the time before. We didn't do this because it's a great new idea for gimmicks to make our church grow. We do this because God is worthy and because God is holy. And when God's word says go, the last thing we do is stay. In his own secret counsel, God plants an Emmanuel Bible church right here in the middle of a neighborhood. It's special. It's like no other. Boy, results are good, but obedience is greater. That's what Jesus is up to, and that's what we must be up to as well. So far, we've seen this offensive drive of Jesus. 
He's in there out of holy zeal. He's attacking sin. He's offended sinners. Secondly, there's a defensive drive to holy zeal. There's this conviction, there's this guard or protection that it brings about. Now, in our first point, we explored the historical background to verse 12. For verse 13, I want to look at the scriptural background, because in this verse, there are two quotes from the Old Testament. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. You are making it a robber's den. That's from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It's very important to understand the background for these verses to understand how Jesus used them. Let me read to you Isaiah 56, verse 7. It's in in its entirety. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Now there, Isaiah 56 speaks of a time when salvation will be for all people, both Jew and Gentile. Now, that kind of blows by us at this point where we stand in history after the cross. That's a huge revelation to the Jewish people. Those despised Gentiles are going to be an equal footing with us before God through his Messiah. We know Jesus fulfills this. And we saw earlier that image. Remember the court of the Gentiles outside the temple? Remember how far away they were from the the Holy of Holies? They could not approach Paul's going to write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Jesus is our peace who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile. And he says it this way. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And many believe that that dividing wall is what Paul had in mind. That wall is flattened. Now the Gentile can approach the Jew both through Jesus the Messiah and they can both come to God together. And Jesus grew angry that God's house could not be used for prayer, for that approach to God from wherever they were coming from. He said, secondly, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, I'll read that in its entirety. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Let me tell you, Jeremiah knew how to deliver a rebuke. If you've ever read through Jeremiah, I couldn't imagine being his son and getting in trouble. That guy's like a grizzly bear whose cubs are in trouble. Chapter 7 of Jeremiah is a rebuke against the people. And what's happening here is they're committing sin and then they're coming into the temple with their sin, not confessing it, almost pretending like God ignores it. Oh, well, we're in the temple, so we're safe here. It's okay here. That is a ridiculous thing to think. You don't automatically become a cop by sitting in a police car, especially if you're in the back. Each of us, when we come in here, each of us is where we are in our walk with God. And just coming into a certain building or a certain place doesn't automatically change that. You know, as you work through the different elements of our order of service, it's not like an automated car wash. Each of us comes in here and we have a business to do with God. 
This is the place to do it, don't get me wrong. This is a wonderful place to come and do it, to, to confess sin to God, to worship God, to praise God. But simply residing in the room, that, that doesn't automatically change things. This is a good place for soul-searching. But again, it's not automatic. In the book of Jeremiah, God sees the hearts of the people coming in. And he sees that they're not dealing with their sin, that they're not clean. And Jesus is quoting that. It's the same experience in his day as it was back in Jeremiah's. The holy zeal of the Lord, it goes on the defensive. And what does Jesus do? Well, he acted to protect. He acted to protect. He protects what is sacred to God. He expelled merchants. He overturned tables. He's protecting the temple, the purity or the holiness of the temple. He takes a stand for God. Let me ask you this morning, are you zealous to protect the temple of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. The next verse, the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Three chapters later, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You see, great abuse occurred in today's account. And the temple, it didn't belong to anybody who was actually present there. The temple belonged to God. And they treated something unholy, or they treated something that was holy as though it was unholy. They had very little regard for the person to whom it did belong. For you and I, our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to God. Our bodies are holy. They are set aside. Our bodies are to be used in particular ways and not in other ways. Do you guard your body with a holy zeal? Your eyes and your ears in your mind? How do you use your hands or where do your feet take you? You see, this morning, believer, Christ is jealous for you. He's jealous for you with a holy jealousy, with a great love and a great affection. He wants you for himself and he wants all of you for himself. He wants you to be pure and holy. Jesus acted to protect that which was pure and holy. And he defended also the very purpose of the temple. You see, God created everything for a purpose. Marriage and and families and men and women and governments and nations and seasons. God created all things for a purpose. And for us, it's very important to understand the purpose of those things. And to use those things for the purpose for which they were created. The temple was to be a house of prayer. And it was not being used according to its purpose. And you can you imagine what a labor it would have been to try to, to pray in that place? I mean, you're competing with haggling and yelling. There's the bleeding of sheep. If you're standing there, there's like sheep bumping into you sideways as you're trying to pray. How could anybody pray for that? You see, when we come into this place, We could come in here, we should come in here in a similar way. We should come in here to pray. 
And we should come in here to pray with all that is involved with prayer. We should be able to come in to pray prayers of adoration. Hearts are just overflowing with joy. What a week it's been basking in the glory of God. Perhaps we're full of His grace or His love or His forgiveness. We can't wait to come in here to sing and to sing loudly. See, we need to make room for people like that here on Sunday morning. This ought to be a place to come in and pray prayers of confession. Along with all that's involved with that, hearts will come into this place weighed down by sin. All someone may need to do is just sit down and talk to God. Grieved by their sin, burdened by their sin, we need to provide a place here where people can come to do that. People will come in here with hearts filled with thanksgiving. God's done amazing things last week. They can't wait to worship him. We need to make this a place for those people too. And people will come in here with prayers of request. Months of trial, the sufferings of loved ones. People come in here burdened with them to grieve and to cry and to mourn and to weep. We need to make this a place for those kinds of people as well. We must protect the purpose of this place and what we do on Sunday mornings. Jesus was a man of of holy zeal. And it led him to take action. We saw in our account this morning, he attacked sin and he offended sinners. It drove him to protect, to protect God's house, those things which are sacred, and even to, to, to guard the purpose for which God created them. Do you want this for your life? Do you read of what Jesus has done this morning and say, I want to be like that? I want to be like the Lord. How do I get it? Well, I want to offer up five ways that we acquire holy zeal. The first is you need to be a Christian. You can't manufacture this. This has to come from from deep inside. This has to come from deep within our hearts. And to gain a holy zeal, we need new hearts. To become a Christian would be to become someone who is saved from their sin. It's to acknowledge that, yes, God, I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And when that happens, something happens within us. We get a new heart. And God begins to change us and make us more like Jesus. And as he does that, we then have this foundation for a holy zeal. Secondly, we need to ask God for it. We need to ask God for it. I imagine we ask God for many good things through the week, but I don't know how often we're necessarily praying for a holy zeal. And we should expect then, as children of God, that our our Heavenly Father would, would want to give us good gifts. And I believe wanting to be like Jesus, wanting to act like Him, that that would be a good gift He would give us if we would ask, Lord, grant me holy zeal. Thirdly, we need to aim for God. We need to aim for God. And just to be clear, it's it's the glory of God that we're after, not zeal in itself. Zeal is not the end goal. 
You see, if it were just about zeal, we could be like anybody else because all kinds of people are zealous about all kinds of things. But that's not the point. God is the point. The glory of God and the, the holiness of God, that's what we're up to. And that'll trigger within us then a, a holy zeal, a, a reaction. Fourthly, we need to nurture it. We need to invest in our relationship with Jesus, little by little, day by day, week in and week out. We're just, we're walking with the Lord, plodding along, we might say it that way. Zeal will come, but it's these regular investments. It's this pattern of living. That's what's going to nurture the zeal. And then finally, stick with it. Stick with it. Don't get discouraged. Don't let others discourage you. Because what's going to happen is that if you start living with a holy zeal, you lose your camouflage. People will know who you're about. And you can't get that back. Nor should we want to. Because God will meet us in those places. When we take risks, God will protect us. Pastor Emery's report from Turkey today, it reminds us of that. God is going to be with us. So will you be a person of holy zeal? Will you be a person of this just one thing? I cannot conclude without reading to you from J.C. Ryle. Zeal in Christianity is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which is not natural to men or women. It is a desire which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when they are converted to Christ. A zealous person is preeminently a person of one thing. It is not enough to say that they are earnest or strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, even fervent in spirit. They see only one thing. They care for one thing. They live for one thing. They're swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether they live or whether they die, whether they please man or whether they give offense, and whether they are accursed or whether they are praised, all this the person, zealous person, cares nothing at all. They have a passion for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and advance God's glory if they are consumed in the very burning of their passion for God, they don't care. They are content. They feel that like a candle they were made to burn. And if they are consumed in the burning, then they have only done the work for which God has appointed them. Such a person will always find a sphere for their zeal. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to be like your Son. And we want our well to be so full of passion for you, of zeal for which is holy. We, we want that to be within us, to overflow into a holy zeal just like Jesus. Help us, Father. Give us a grace to be men and women of, of holy zeal. I pray that none of us this morning would be discouraged wherever we are in this quest, Lord, that we would be encouraged 
to know that you can produce that within us through your Holy Spirit. We are so thankful for the example of Jesus and for his fearlessness and his courage. Thank you for his great love for us. We pray that your name would be glorified and magnified in this church. It's in his name we pray. Amen.